0: Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at GetPuroAir.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, GetPuroAir.com. I'm Stephanie Safarian, and this is Episode 74. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello there. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. Today's show is all about inspiring you to live your best life. That's because I'm chatting with authors, Eric and Emily Orton. The Orton's are a family of seven. That's five kids. One of them with special needs who packed up their lives, moved onto a sailboat and sailed around the Caribbean for a year. I wanted to have Eric and Emily on the show because they have mastered intentional living. They had a dream like many of us do, but even more important is that they had the courage or maybe a better word is they had the grit to make it happen despite encountering many bumps along the way. Today, I'm asking Eric and Emily how exactly they customized their lives to make room for their dreams. We get into what they've learned by living intentional off-the-grid lives too. Now, Eric and Emily's book is called Seven at Sea, Why a New York City Family Cast-Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat, and Eric and Emily have generously brought along a free hardcover copy for one lucky listener today. You can very easily enter to win your free copy in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash zero seven four. Enjoy the interview. Eric and Emily, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Eric, I'll start with you.
1: Doing great. I went surfing this morning and just got back, so I'm happy.
2: (laughs) I'm doing really well, too. I decided to stay home, and that was nice.
0: (laughs) I absolutely loved the book, Seven at Sea, and it really inspired me to tackle some of the dreams that I've had in the back of my mind but have put off because life gets in the way, and we will absolutely get there, and we'll talk about living dreams on small budgets, but before we even get there, Emily, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your family of seven.
2: Uh, Well, Eric and I married young, and my big idea was that if we were young when we had our children, we would be young when they all moved out, and we would still have energy as grandparents and energy as a couple, and ultimately, he decided to go along with my plan, and we have four daughters and one son, and they're five kids in a 10-year span, So by the time we moved aboard the boat, we had kids ages six to 16. And we started with three girls. We have one boy who sometimes feels very sorry for himself that he has no brothers. And then our youngest is also a daughter. And she surprised us with a diagnosis of Down syndrome when she was about five months old. So the kids are always keeping us on our toes.
0: Hmm, I'm sure. I have two and... I do not even think I could even consider three. So hats off to you with five. And I know that you, at least in the past, you homeschooled. So two hats off to you. I love it. Your book is all about having a dream, packing up your family, leaving New York City, getting onto a sailboat despite having had no sailing experience, and sail for a year. Eric, I would love for you to explain to me how on earth you got this crazy idea in your head, and why the idea seemed so attractive at the time.
1: Well, the I first of all, thank you for the question, and uh, I think the idea the idea unfolded over time. I was not a sailor; I didn't grow up sailing, and neither did Emily. And so, it was something that was very foreign to me, and it felt very other. It felt like something that rich people did or well-connected people or people that just owned boats. And I guess the backstory is that I was working in New York, working in theater uh, on Broadway and took a big risk and produced as a, as a young dad produced an off Broadway show and kind of staked everything on it financially, at least. And also my own, my, my own ego is very attached to it. And long story short, it was a, Complete financial failure. The show was beautiful; it was fun. Everyone that came loved it, but it it just didn't last very long. And so, I became very well. First of all, we were broke. I was very embarrassed, and so I just didn't really want to show my face. And so, I took a job outside the theater industry and worked at this temp job in the evening, so I could keep working on creative projects during the day. And I would take dinner breaks out by the Hudson and just walk along, and I would see these sailboats. And I always thought sailing was pretty cool, but this was the first time I'd actually seen sailboats on a regular basis and then realized eventually that they were all coming out of this sailing school that was right downstairs from where I worked. And so I would describe this to Emily and she thought, you know, I could use something in my life that was restorative and healing and encouraged me to go check it out. And I thought it was beautiful. And, but yet I felt very, um, I'd sort of disqualified myself from it because I didn't think I met all the requirements to be a sailor. Anyway, I went out on the dock and walked into the sailing school and asked them how this whole thing worked. And they were very nice, welcoming, and friendly, and said that if you can get a group of four together, we can do a class whenever you want, because my schedule was weird, working nights. And I couldn't get anybody else to join me, so I recruited Emily and our two oldest girls. And I, we money was tight, so I took a I did some contract work for a former employer to come up with the cash to do it. And then we learned that we got very seasick, but that we liked it. I mean, not the seasickness, but we liked sailing. <laughs> and, uh, and then it grew from there. Once we graduated Sailing 101, we went and found a place that would rent us a sailboat for half a day out in New Jersey. And we went out as a family. It was what I would describe a almost a complete disaster. All the kids were freaking out and I was not at my best and I was yelling and running into things and we were dropping things overboard and the other boaters that were out there on their jet skis and speedboats were pointing and laughing at us. And that was a rough start, but that was our first family sail. And then it, it just grew from there.
0: It's one thing to take up sailing as a hobby and do it with your two oldest children and your wife on the weekends, but it's a whole nother thing to pack up that family, all five children instead of just the two oldest and pack up your belongings and move on to a sailboat for a year. So I'm wondering when did it become less of a hobby and more of a, I need to do this, this is a passion.
1: I think I assumed that everybody always, like everybody wanted to just go sail on a boat for a year. And I didn't realize that that was really an unusual idea. I've since learned that most people don't want to do that and that's perfectly fine. But as we learned how to sail, I would start to Google you know, families living on a boat or living on a sailboat. And I would come across blogs and YouTube videos. And and ultimately we found a family out of England that was planning to take two years and sail around the world. So they were, you know, this was kind of early on in this stage where YouTube and world travel was, were kind of just connecting. And they started to post little episodic videos about their experience. And I would watch these in the living room and, The kids would gather around and start to ask questions like, who are these people? Where are they? Do they live on that boat? And one day I was just leaning, you know, our kids were reading and playing quietly in the living room, which almost never happens. And I was just leaning against the wall and watching my kids and Emily snuggled up next to me. And I said, I think the seven of us on a sailboat would be enough universe for me. And Emily thought that this was on the one hand romantic and yet terrifying and you know maybe she can speak for herself.
2: Oh, well, I didn't ask any of the questions and things at that time. I just thought it was like if if it was going to be an idea that we were serious about exploring, there would be plenty of time for those questions and concerns to come up. I didn't need to just like dump them all out at once. And so I just said, "Well, when would you like to go?" and that's when I think it went from being a hobby to being a goal because then we knew we wanted to sail as a family for a year before our oldest daughter, who was then 14, would leave for college. So we now had you know, a timeline and some specific measurable details. And there was a sense of urgency that that came along with that. And, you know, I had plenty of opportunities to ask all the other questions about, well, what about our school? What about our friends? What about our community? What about health? What about safety? Uh, What about, you know, any, any of the things I, you know, where, how do, how are we going to store our food or any of those things? There was plenty of time over the next couple of years for me to explore multiple answers to those questions.
0: Hmm. You said a lot, but I'm just going to hone in on one thing you said, which was that you really wanted to take this journey before your oldest daughter went to college. And you said something in the book that I just loved, and I took it from the book and I put it on my fridge because it really spoke to me. Let your kids be your reason rather than your excuse. It just, it, it, it hit my heart. So I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit more
1: for sure uh, you know especially with the kid with disabilities or five kids it was it just seemed really easy and obvious to say well you know with kids with this many kids and you know with the amount of money that we bring in there's just no way this could happen it would be very very easy to dismiss doing something like this then just reevaluating it we thought you know we only have one life we only have our kids with us for a very short period of time and once they leave that opportunity to really spend big chunks of time with them is gone and it's gone forever. So we knew that this was a a limited time offer.
2: I want to step in here and say um, early on, I saw my sister-in-law had a calendar on her fridge and it wasn't a monthly calendar. It was like there were a hundred squares and each square represented a year of her life. And she had the squares where she had children colored and then as her children like would leave for school or move out those would go to half colored squares or empty squares not that she stopped being a mother but just when you could look at it over the course of a lifespan even if it was like the average lifespan of like 85 or something you could you could see really clearly how short the amount of time that our children are with us that is a limiting factor that's a that's a resource you know that that runs out time as family runs Out and so I started doing that myself early on. Like I think our kids were still toddlers, and I would always keep one and and I might project it forward through many years, and I would know this is how old each of our kids are going to be at these times, and here is when you know they're going to start applying for school or here. I just kept it forward in mind, and it was for two reasons. One is that sometimes when you are in the middle of parenting phase or a particular parenting moment it feels like it's never, ever going to end. And you just, it was really helpful to realize it it is going to actually end at some point or like they are going to grow out of this or, you know, whatever. And on the other hand, to realize how precious it was. So I got both sides of the coin from keeping a calendar like that. And so we had that front of mind as we were making our choices about, you know, what we wanted to do with the limited time we had with our kids.
0: Hmm. That very popular saying, the days are long, but the years are short, pops into my head when you talk about (laughs) that visual. But that leads me to ask you, when it comes to making a dream happen, I mean, we all have dreams, right? But a lot of people get caught up in the small details and they get so caught up that they just give up or stop before they even start. You had an ambitious dream. What small details came up in that month or two before embarking? But more importantly, how did you handle them?
1: The, the number of details that came up in the month prior are astounding. And, and going through them would be overwhelming for us and for anybody listening. But the thing is, we came upon all of them very gradually. And we, we didn't take them all on at once because it was six years between having this idea and actually going. When you come up with an idea or you set a goal or feel or sense what the ambition is that's within you, I think the last thing to do is to try and worry at that point, how it's going to happen. Just set that aside for a little while because it's so easy to say, well, I have no idea how this is going to happen, so I'm not even going to dare to think it or dream it. Whereas I'm a big believer in take the idea, don't worry about how it's going to happen, just worry about what first. Write that down, articulate it, share it with, you know, your spouse or who you whoever you trust and are close with. And then very, very slowly and incrementally, you can go to work on, okay, well, what's a baby step that will help begin this process? And we, I believe, you know, don't do something big, do a, a lot of little things that add up to something big.
2: I think for us, it came together kind of like a puzzle where we just sort of got the outer edges first and then slowly filled in the middle. And I would say, like, I think that we wouldn't have persisted through every little setback or every little detail or every little problem or big problem that needed to be solved if it had just been any one of us individually. But when Eric would start to get overwhelmed or nervous, then I would be there saying, oh, we can do this. And when I would start to feel that way, then he would be there to encourage me and if both of us were moving too slow, then our kids might jump in and say like, are you guys really going to do this? And so the fact that the dream had spread to the whole family, I think is part of how it actually became successful because there was always somebody carrying the torch and keeping the momentum going forward. And it was usually Eric and I, but everybody did chip in on that. So by the time we got to the to those last couple of months where I'm painting the apartment and washing all the sheets and moving our journals and tax papers to his parents basement and like running to target for plastic bins we can take on the airplane and then the airport's suddenly telling us we're not allowed to use those kind of bins as luggage and no you can't get on this flight and we're like can you please just call the next airport supervisor and we have like a kid throwing up over here you know like as all of those things you know came together obviously the easiest thing to do is, go home and turn on Netflix. And I love Netflix. It's nothing against Netflix. But just there were definitely times when we were like, man, I never want to do a hard thing again in my whole life. But that doesn't last very long because as humans, I think we toggle back and forth between wanting to be really comfortable and then wanting to like try something new and try to like make ourselves uncomfortable. And then once we get in that uncomfortable space, our new goal becomes getting comfortable there.
0: You talk a lot about your finances in the book, and we haven't covered them yet tonight, but I know I have listeners listening who assume that, well, this may have been easy for you to do because of finances. You have it. We don't, so we can't dream big. And I'm wondering, Eric, maybe you could take this on. Do you have to be wealthy to achieve your big dreams?
1: I think the answer is no. A question that we adopted early on in our marriage was: We don't in the Orton family. We do not say we can't afford something. We say, "How can we afford something?" Because saying you can't afford something is is kind of a lazy mindset, and uh, and that might sound a little harsh, but it just kind of says, "Oh, I'm I'm going to check out, and I'm I'm automatically disqualifying myself because I oh we can't afford it." And I know parents say that to their kids all the time. It's, it's a very normal phrase and and we've said it often, but we, we, you know, we've weaned it out of our vocabulary and we say, how can we afford it? Because then that really ignites creativity. Your mind goes to work and you begin solving problems and coming up with solutions. And uh, we have had, you know, at that time, statistically average income for the state of New York and
2: but a big family
1: but but so yeah a big family on an average income in a very expensive city Uh, yeah so and i guess an example was i couldn't afford to rent sailboats to go out and practice but once i had my certification all my friends thought it was cool and wanted to go sailing and i was like okay you guys cover the cost of the boat i'm gonna captain and so then I wasn't paying for the sailboats; they were, but I was getting practice. It's really about becoming creative and how you um, accomplish things, because the easiest method is just to have the money and spend money. But it's also, I think, the least satisfying.
2: I, I don't know if we just had money and spent it. That I wonder what that would feel like. <laughs> but we, um, one of the, the the things I thought was interesting is uh, we were looking for inexpensive old boats and fixer-uppers, and we came to realize that for us, the best deal was going to actually be to buy a newer, more expensive boat that we would then be able to resell when the trip was over, and that was going to be more financially sound than buying the cheaper boat that um, – you know, nobody would be able to get financing for because it was too old for insurance comparables and things like that. So there were some surprises along the way that sort of flew in in the face of what I thought would be uh, common sense, like, oh, you save money by buying something cheaper. In this case we saved money by buying something more expensive. And we ultimately sold the boat for the same price that we bought it for, which, you know, we had put work into it and added some features, but still, <laughs> it turned out to to make our trip you know, a lot cheaper than just spending the year living our regular life in New York City.
0: Hmm. It sounds like what you're both saying is that a little creativity and ingenuity goes a long way. If you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. Yeah. I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly, but let's actually talk about the experience. Emily, we'll start with you. What have you gained from the experience?
2: I came to feel somewhat amphibious. I came to feel competent on land or on water, which opened up a a huge um, amount of the planet to me that was previously closed, largely because I was actually just afraid of water, afraid of deep water, afraid of what was under there and all that unknown stuff. I grew up in the kind of a landlocked place, and my family trips growing up were usually to visit you know, whatever relatives around it. We didn't. We weren't like uh, explorers in that sense. And so uh, that was all really new and exciting for me. And it made me just feel a lot more confident as I like learned to snorkel. And I've since uh, become scuba certified. And so uh, a lot of places like Eric talked about before, things we disqualify ourselves from. As I worked past those fears, and I opened up all these things that I actually really loved hiding behind that. You know, door number three. What's behind my fear? These awesome experiences in in water and in places surrounded by water. So for me, I gained a lot of um, just being comfortable in new places. You know, I just felt like really strong. I felt really capable, like being able to wash my family's laundry by hand and lug my groceries home on my back, or you know. <laughs> just taking care of problems as they came. I just, yeah, it made me feel really capable. And we talk about three kinds of confidence. One is competence, just of learning new skills and the confidence that comes from credibility because we actually did what we said we were going to do. And then um, the last one, probably the best one for me, I don't don't know how it is for every other human being um, or every other mom, but I find that I tended to be kind of – controlling like i w- i wanted to have control i felt like knowing what was going to happen next and sort of manipulating the variables would would bring this sense of safety but that wasn't really possible as we were dealing with weather and the ocean and it's actually <laughs> sort of a myth i think we tell ourselves about our our kids we re- we really don't have control there either so the sense of calm came as i realized i didn't have to know what was going to happen and like we could just face Each moment as it presented itself, we could have a broad strokes idea, and then we would figure out the details as we move forward.
0: Emily, I have to tell you, as I was reading the book, I was silently and sometimes not so silently cheering you on. (laughs) Well, as a fellow mom, I just thought you had so much courage going out on this boat. You didn't even like water so much. You, at the beginning, were not so into sailing. And then You're in the Caribbean. You're lugging supplies. It's a full-day event from the store to the boat, and you are literally lugging them on your back. It seemed to me as a reader that you really took on a lot and thrived in that discomfort. So, Thank you. Thank you for writing about it in such candid detail. But Eric, I want to ask you the same question. What do you think you took away from the experience?
1: Oh, Emily already stole all the good answers. (laughs) I don't think I don't think we learned what we, we fi- I don't think we figured out what we learned until we got back and actually took time to write the book and I would say that, that was one of the reasons we wrote the book was that we to articulate the ideas that come into our lives and I guess I would reiterate what Emily said which is just that we've become very comfortable with uncertainty and we've become not relaxed but unflustered perhaps by big twists in our lives. And, and I guess as an example might be that right now we're, we're planning to go to New Zealand. We're, we're house sitting in Hawaii and we're planning to go to New Zealand. And it was sort of a last minute decision. It's Friday and we bought the tickets four days ago and we just said, okay, well let's, you know, but we don't know how we're going to afford it exactly. So let's go online and look around for house sitting gigs. And turns out we've already had a Skype session with this lovely couple who runs a bed and breakfast that they close down for the winter and they go visit their kids in Europe. And,
2: and it's winter in New Zealand. It's right winter now. there.
1: Yeah. On the other side of the planet. And so we're going to look after their horses and sheep and their dog. And aside from that, we just don't know other than, you know, we're going to go there and we're, we've bought one-way tickets and we have to be back in New York in the fall because we have some speaking engagements that we're committed to. But other than that, it's pretty open. And and we've come to really enjoy that. And I was very, very much a worrier. I don't know if that comes through in the book or not, but I, had a, I felt a lot of stress and concern, especially financially. And I felt a lot of responsibility for running the boat and making sure that it was safe and taking care of my family. And the transition that I think Emily was describing where we've become comfortable, we let things emerge. Before we used to worry a lot about how things would turn out and now we just wonder, we just say, you know, I wonder how it's going to turn out. I wonder what solution is going to present itself. I wonder what we'll figure out. And replacing worry with wonder has become our new approach. And and so far, we're liking it a lot.
2: I think that's a great, yeah, great thing for, for your minimalists out there or your declutterers to say like, what sort of styles of thinking are Covering up my my opportunities for for joy or for creativity or for exploration and yeah, worry is like the biggest brain clutter. Like it's better oh, to just clear that all out and you'd be amazed at what comes into its space.
0: I love that. Replace worry with wonder. I'm stealing it. I will credit you, <laughs> whatever I use it. But that's that's that that I think summarizes your essence right there. I I guess I have to ask though. Do you feel as though your children too have learned to embrace uncertainty from the experience? I think that answer
2: is absolutely yes. Uh, the oldest one said, I don't think living on a sailboat changed who I am, but I think it made me more myself. And then our younger one, the ni- she's 19 now, um, 20 now actually, just turned 20, but she was 15 on this boat trip. And she said, living aboard the sailboat made me more comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that is like a huge thing to go forward in life with. So it really has been awesome for our kids and they've just taken so many brave steps since then. And it's been a joy to watch them.
1: And just jumping in here, I think a proud moment for me as a dad was when Karina, our oldest, decided to go do a study abroad in Europe and she did this whole literature and landscapes thing where they hiked, from Scotland down to England, visiting literary locations, people who had written stuff. and But then, you know, she was, she was like, I'm in Europe. I should go see some other things. And so she went to Paris with a few friends, I think two other friends, and they had to peel off. And we knew through a, a friend of a friend, somebody was in Southern France and they said, yeah, she can come stay here. And she ended up spending another, what was it? month or six weeks
2: like a week in France a week in Switzerland a few days in Germany and then she I think she met up with family in, in Finland f- and got like home a, from a ferry ride to St. Petersburg and then yeah met, she just like went for it
1: yeah so she's you know like what was it, 18 19 year old kid and she's just traipsing around Europe on her own and you know figuring out her own trains and connections and And not that it's all about traveling Europe or something like that. But but just that she had this confidence to venture out into the world and ask what could go right and knew that she could figure things out and just trusted that things would emerge. And for her, they did. And so I guess to go back to your original question, we don't want our kids to feel like they want need to do the same things that we're doing, but we would like them we're we're happy that they're taking the same approach into the things that interest them.
0: It sounds like at least your oldest has gained a quiet confidence that she can put herself in uncomfortable Mm -hmm. positions and trust in herself to get herself out of them. And I think as a parent, I mean, my kids are nowhere near traveling Europe alone or doing anything alone. (laughs) They're two and five, but, but as a parent, I think, yeah, that's a little young. (laughs) I think that's probably the best thing we can teach our children, right? Is to trust in yourself and believe in yourself that you can figure out that solution One final question, maybe Emily will start with you and then Eric, if you'd like to chime in. My question is, for those of us listening who are considering a big dream, whatever it may be, it probably for most of us is not going on a sailboat for a year, although that is my husband's dream, I will say. For listeners who have a big dream in mind, but they're bogged down by the little details or they're bogged down by the finances, what advice do you have for them? Emily, go ahead. Well, I think
2: Eric mentioned it just a second ago. The the question that really helps us because it's so easy to ask about what could go wrong, but thinking about what could go right is what I think can really pull us over that you know, that speed bump of fear that gets in the way. And I think, you know, asking what could go right, recognizing that failure is a very natural part of the process and that we should expect to get things wrong as we, you know, move forward towards getting them right. And then I think also that there's a lot of things that we just can't know in advance and we can't be ready in advance. And it's kind of a grow as you go <laughs> way of moving forward. Um, I know like for me, living on a boat was not my big dream, but my huge Overpowering and overwhelming dream since I was very little was always to become a mother. And I was so lucky to be able to have that happen in my life. It's not something that everyone just gets because they want it. And I could have had all those same fears about, well, what about all the details? Or what if I won't be a very good mom? Or what about the expense, you know, and things like that. And I heard two women talking one time to, about being a mom and saying like, "Oh, well, I'm just not ready." And and I had to kind of laugh to myself inside as I stood in that line with three little kids, because kind of like, "Oh, you're never gonna be ready." And I think whatever your big dream is, like, you are never gonna be ready. Just you have to go, and and the doing is what qualifies you.
1: I would say that for something that that you that you want to do, if it's if it's a big enough dream, nobody's ever going to invite you to do it. It's something where you really have to take the reins and take the initiative. So there's never going to be an invitation to do it. There's never going to be a a right time or a good time to do it. It's never going to be convenient and there's never going to be enough money. And so it's a matter of first, I think, articulating what the idea is, not worrying initially about how to do it and just know that it's going to be solving a puzzle, both in terms of time, energy and money. And and then once you get to that point, write it down. Writing it down is so powerful and and speaking it out loud to somebody else. Just saying it is really transformative, I think. And then pick one thing that will move you towards it. And then just start steadily moving, you know, repeating that activity over and over again and you'll get comfortable with it and then you'll move to the next thing. And, And I'm not too worried about timelines that things will happen when they happen. I think moving steadily in, in that direction. And I guess for me, I've seen that happen in so many different ways in my life, not just this boat trip. It's happened with my own physical health. It's happened with big ambitious rock climbs that I've wanted to do. It happened with the sailboat. And honestly, it's how we wrote the book. I just said, I'm going to go to my desk and these are my, these are my times to write and I'm just going to do it every day. And and Emily and I teamed up on it and, there was no one magical moment. It was just a series of lots of steady incremental steps.
2: I, I read about a guy who has a, a speech called like 236,000 steps to success. And I'm like, That's real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I wish you both the best of luck in Hawaii and as you head on to New Zealand. But I just want to close with asking you, where can you be found online?
1: I think the best place is seven at com, and that's all spelled out. And seven at dot com links to our blog where we post pretty regularly, which is fezziwig.com. And then we're both on Instagram. I'm Eric Orton and Emily is Emily Orton2020. And uh, those and you know, we're on Facebook and everything else, but you can find all those other places at those sites.
0: And your book, I assume, can be purchased anywhere books are sold.
1: Yep on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, books, all, all, yeah. the, all the major so- books. And it's always fun to go to, to log on to Japanese Amazon and see it all in, in Japanese. And- <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, pretty anywhere books are sold.
0: I will link to your social medias and your blog and your website all in the show notes. But I just want to thank you both, Eric and Emily, for coming on and inspiring all of us to dream big and go for it. So thank you so much.
1: This has been a real pleasure, Stephanie. Thanks for having us on.
0: Yeah, thank you. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Eric and Emily Orton. And a big thank you from me to all seven Ortons for reminding us all that our lives are what we make of them, regardless of what society or what convention tells us they should look like. Now, if episodes like this one inspire you to live your best life, a friendly reminder that I've done this before. (laughs) Episode 19 of this podcast discusses the nuts and bolts of tiny home living. That's just 400 square feet, by the way. And episode 25 is all about quitting jobs, hopping into a transformed van, and traipsing around the country. Don't forget to enter to win a free hardcover copy of 7 at Sea in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 074. And it is that time of year, my friends. On next week's show, we're talking all about zero waste gardening for mediocre gardeners. I will see you then. Take care.
1: At Highland,
0: we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with.